Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name's Joshua. And I'm Grayson. And this is a very special end of the year podcast, episode 22, 2018, a year in review. In this episode, we'll be looking back over a very eventful year in emergency management, including our own epic disaster highlight reel and some major advancements in the field. We'll also be discussing what we think 2019 might have in store and a few of our own New Year's resolutions. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. Well, 2018 has somehow come and gone, and as far as Canadian disaster management goes at least, I can say without a doubt, 2018 was no lightweight. From record-breaking fires in BC, to devastating ice storms in the Maritimes, to one of the more deadly heat waves that Canada has ever seen. No doubt. And, you know, to sort of bring it all together, we've decided to present, for your listening pleasure, the 2018 epic disaster highlight reel. So Josh, take it away. So we'll start off with one of the more memorable and tragic events of the year, the Humboldt bus crash. As you may recall, on April 6th, 2018, 16 people were tragically killed and 13 were injured when a bus carrying the Humboldt Broncos collided with a dual trailer semi-truck north of Tisdale, Saskatchewan. The event garnered international attention and has been described as one of the most notable news stories of the year Mm. in Canada. Now, Grayson, from a professional viewpoint, uh, this is a, an important event for us to review because it's really a prototypical Canadian MCI. It involves remote locations with lots of geographical challenges, multi-jurisdictional response, and intense media coverage. You really have to imagine what your own response would be had this been in your community. So in the response to the uh, initial 911 calls, over 100 first responders were eventually at the scene. And because it's Saskatchewan, many of them uh, had personal connections to the victims. I had a chance to speak with uh, some people that were involved in the healthcare response at a re- recent conference I was in, uh, involved in. And, and really, the response sounded um, masterful. Uh, From a boots-on-the-ground perspective, there was multiple volunteer fire departments that were involved. So Tisdale, Melfort, uh, Nipawan, and Zeon Park, uh, along with paramedics from Northeast EMS and multiple RCMP detachments, um, and later on, uh, STARS Air Ambulance. They did the kind of classic MCI triage that many of us have learned using paper triage tags, um, but they didn't really do a lot to discriminate transport decisions because unfortunately everybody who was triaged was either a red or a black. The majority of patients were transferred by EMS and private vehicles to two rural hospitals in nearby uh, Nipawan and, and Tisdale. And from there, three stars, air ambulances, and multiple fixed-wing aircraft from Saskatchewan and Alberta were used to transfer patients to the Royal University Hospital in Saskatoon, which is the only level one trauma center in the province. The Royal University Hospital did activate its Code Orange plan, and Dr. James uh, Stepman is an emergency physician who recently spoke at the WEDOC conference in BC, that's the Western Emergency Department Overcrowding Conference, and he talked a little bit about the hospital disaster response. And overall, everything went uh, really well, um, but he did notice a few areas uh, and mentioned a few areas uh, where improvements uh, could be made. Uh, They had some issues using their emergency plan in terms of some problematic checklists. And we've talked about before how 
when checklists are uh, useful and when they're not. They had issues with shift rescheduling, issues with confusion over the color coding of some of the ICS vests. And interestingly, their code orange plan was actually a remnant plan from the former Saskatoon Health Authority, which uh, about a year ago was merged into a new province-wide healthcare system similar to AHS in Alberta. So their disaster plan as a result has been going through a, a transition. So the event will certainly play a major role in the development of the new province-wide disaster plan. And from a municipal perspective, although the city of Humboldt had less involvement in the actual MCI response, Due to the massive impact, they still uh, activated their municipal EOC the same night of the crash, and they were assisting with trauma counseling and a massive flood of media inquiries. The city manager Joe Day and Humboldt Fire Chief Mike Quasson uh, presented at the Manitoba Disaster Management Conference earlier in October, and they talked about the unique response to this mental health disaster, which is generally not covered as a primary hazard type in most plans. It still required a whole of community response and overwhelmed their resources, especially their local mental health resources. Um, and there's not been a, a publicly available after action report that we can find. Uh, but I know anecdotally that uh, a lot of the involved organizations are already addressing many of the lessons learned from the um, uh, incident. So policy change is also underway in terms of transportation safety issues, both in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And uh, the coroners in Saskatchewan are looking into procedures around victim identification and death notification because they did have some cases of uh, misidentified uh, victims. All in all, though, uh, quite a tragic event. But uh, speaking to some of the responders involved, it sounds like uh, if you had an MCI that you uh, wanted to go well, this would be a good example to, to look at as a case study. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. This is the quintessential case study. I think we've probably all been involved in scenarios or exercises where exactly this happened. And some of the the elements that you, you talked about are the things that frequently get identified as uh, issues in, in the response especially around patient identification and notification. And then only a few weeks later in the year, on April 23rd, we had a man uh, in Toronto who drove a rental van through crowds in North York, killing 10 and injuring 16. So this was the uh, now infamous Toronto van attack. More than 870 911 calls were received in the initial minutes of the attack. And uh, as a result of all the casualties and other MCI, a code orange was activated at Toronto's Sunnybrook Hospital, which is the uh, one of the trauma hospitals that was on for that day. And the majority of patients were taken to that facility to be treated. Uh, one of the police officers, Ken Lamb, received accolades for his skillful de-escalation and arrest of the suspect. And uh, at the time, the suspect was trying to provoke suicide by cops. So um, kudos uh, to how that uh, difficult case was was managed. Uh, this goes on record as being one of the uh, largest vehicle-borne um, attacks in Canadian history. That's right. And, and you know, vehicle attacks are getting a lot more awareness and uh, attention, especially around mass gathering events, um, just because of their increased frequency internationally. And this was sort of Canada's first interaction with this sort of tragic incident. 
You know, interestingly, in comparison to the Humboldt bus crash and victim identification, you know, in the Humboldt crash, the coroner's office uh, came under a little bit of scrutiny around maybe identifying too early and making that mistaken identification of the deceased. Uh, in the Toronto van attack, uh, the coroner's office, different province, different strategies, different um, procedures, it came under a little bit of scrutiny for delaying the release of information around identification of the deceased. So clearly there's some work mm. to do still in that. Uh, so moving on, we had the weather bomb phenomenon, and this affected Canada in a few different uh, uh, times, actually in January and later on in, in October. Um, but the I, I like this term because weather bomb is the actual term that was being used by meteorologists. Right. We're not making so, this up, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in case you're curious, a, a weather bomb is a term for a low pressure system that's central pressure falls by 24 millibars in 24 hours. And the process is known as explosive cyclogenesis or bombogenesis. And its effects uh, can be quite pronounced, especially um, in Alberta, where they saw intense snowfall and uh, had to have a subsequent EOC activation looking for mutual aid in the form of snowplows. And in the Maritimes in January, where they had a, a similar uh, weather bomb phenomenon, uh, they had a, a snow hurricane of sorts, where uh, the provincial EOC was activated um, those widespread power outages and other storm impacts. So certainly a disaster event of note. Mm -hmm. And of a special note, you know, this was uh, the aptly named Winter Storm Grayson, which I'm quite fond of. And, <laughs> uh, and, and you know, this was a historic event, not only because of the newly coined term and the amount of snow and wind that was present, but also because it was the largest organized response to power outages that uh, has ever been seen in the province. Impressive. Looking at some of the major uh, disaster anniversaries this past year, we had the five-year anniversary of the Lac-Megantic rail disaster. But unfortunately, um, it's left many wondering if some of the so-called lessons learned are going to end up being merely lessons observed. Many of the proposed changes, including updated safety management systems uh, that came uh, as recommendations after the incident, have yet to materialize. And this includes allowing emergency managers easier access to dangerous goods, load inventories in their communities, and we just really haven't seen the progress we would have hoped to see five years later. Despite an election promise that increased rail safety uh, funding uh, being increased, uh, and it actually did go up for the two years kind of around the last federal election, Transport Canada will now be seeing a 17% cut to its safety and inspections budget. Uh, also, while some may recall the announcement of an accelerated phase-out of those problematic DOT-111 tank cars, those are the, the type of tank cars that are ill-suited for transporting crude oil and, and the ones that resulted in the, the, the failure in Lac-Megantique, Lac uh, the reality is that although the DOT-111 cars have been mostly uh, phased out for crude oil transport, they were replaced by the only marginally better CPC-1232 cars, or the 1232 cars, uh, which aren't really that much better. Um, and we're all hoping that uh, the new TC-117 design, which is the actual the more safe uh, design, uh, would be implemented sooner. The CPC-1232 cars will still be transporting crude uh, through communities throughout Canada up until 2025. Oh, and remember the Federal Emergency Response Task Force report that we covered in previous episodes? Mm -hmm. 
many of those recommendations also, um, including the development of a national flammable fuels response training program, have also yet to be implemented. Perhaps most disturbing is you look at the actual uh, Transport Canada statistics uh, regarding rail incidents. In the four years following the disaster, the average annual number of runaway runaway rail cars has actually jumped 21%, up uh, 48 uh, from 48 to 58. And trends looking overall at railway dangerous goods incidents have also increased. So wow. I think keeping an eye on these things is important, uh, especially for emergency managers. We, we're kind of the, the ones uh, that have to take the time to dig through the technical weeds, uh, uh, so to speak. And it's important not just for our planning efforts, but also for us to advocate for our communities. So in other news, the uh, New Brunswick flooding uh, came up as a recurrent theme uh, this past year. So it is starting to become more and more a new normal in New Brunswick. Uh, parts of the province were underwater uh, uh, multiple times in the year and thousands were evacuated. Uh, water levels set new records as the swollen St. John River surged its banks and unfortunately even right now as we speak during the holiday season uh, certain parts of New Brunswick are again under flood watch. You know it's it is interesting you're talking about flooding um, it seems like all of the traditional hazards that Canada is, is faced with are extending their seasons. You know, it's very atypical mm -hmm. to see flooding uh, all the way into, you know, November, December in, in some places. Uh, and it certainly had an early start this year as well. And from flooding to fire, we moved to BC where they had the worst wildfire season on record, at least in terms of area burned. Uh, something like 1.3 million hectares burned and over 560 wow. wildfires that were identified throughout the season. And it sort of leads me to ask the question, is this even news? I mean, we're talking about the new normal. BC wildfire um, setting new records is, seems to be a bit of a trend. Uh, you know, last year in 2017, they set the, the record for most expensive wildfire season ever. Now they're setting the, the record for most uh, area burned. Yeah, I mean... You and I were both at the uh, Alberta Emergency Management Agency Summit this year, and we, we saw the uh, the charts there looking at uh, climate change and, and wildfires, and a uh, pretty obvious trend with what direction things were going. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in terms of trends, this was also the second year in a row where a provincial state of emergency had to be declared. So in, in August, while there were over 500 wildfires actively burning uh, as a sidebar, you know, 400 of those were actually human caused, so very preventable. Um, a provincial state of emergency was declared and then it was extended as well. So that's the second one in as many years. Uh, as a few stats go for the, the BC wildfire season, um, there were 31 evacuation orders affecting over 1,500 properties and uh, people. There were four regional operation centers active and uh, at least 19 reception centers were opened. You know, and this wasn't just limited to BC as well. Uh, smoke issues across Canada were felt and lots of provinces had air quality warnings just because of these types of wildfires. Yeah, I remember that, uh, those smoky uh, summer evenings for sure. In other hot stuff news, uh, the heat waves of this year were were pretty dramatic. Um, apparently, this summer overall was one of the, the warmest on record. I think it ranked third. And in the beginning of July, there was a week-long heat wave which affected uh, Quebec, Ontario, and parts of the Maritimes quite dramatically. And this is one of the, the deadliest disasters in uh, recent Canadian history anyways. Uh, as many as 90 deaths in Quebec were attributed to the heat wave, uh, most of them in Montreal. 
And you know, this is a really interesting point because heat wave deaths are a little tricky to identify sometimes. Um, and I'll tell you what, I'll start you off with a, a report by the Quebec Public Health Authority. And special thanks to uh, my friend Dirk Chisholm for translating this as it is only available in French currently. Uh, some of the trends that came out of the Quebec heat wave were not surprising, but were really well identified. So in this specific event, the primarily impacted person was was typically uh, over 60 year old male who was isolated in terms of their living living conditions had no air conditioning had some sort of pre-existing mental or physical health issue and it was all concentrated in, in urban areas so like i said mainly in montreal you know there were a lot of kind of interesting response elements to this as well. Uh, first responder door knocking campaigns were initiated, mobile cooling stations like buses were used. And like I said, 90, over 90 deaths attributed to this. By comparison, in Ontario, about three cases were investigated for potentially being a, a heat incident related death, but zero were reported. Why is that? Well, that's really interesting. Yeah, I think the part of that is related to the reporting standards, and they're quite different mm -hmm. between the provinces. Quebec had first responders reporting possible heat-related deaths, uh, whereas in Ontario it's uh, done after the fact. Um, it's really interesting looking at heat waves from a public health and epidemiology standpoint because there's uh, so much richness in the data for who is vulnerable and what makes somebody vulnerable in these yeah. urban heat islands. So um, getting you know quality... Um, uh, statistics and uh, uh, information on who's actually being affected is super important. You know, there are a lot of problems with our current approach to managing heat waves. And I think some of them were overcome in, during the Quebec heat wave, but a lot of them still exist. You know, the typical cooling station, which is one of our primary protective actions during a heat wave, mm -hmm. is a community hall or a water park. Basically, it requires you to be a mobile person who has access to uh, in information sources like the internet. So the exact opposite of who is most impacted during hate waves. And you know, other other issues arise as well. Uh, Montreal in particular came under fire for some of their hospital preparedness to this. You know, not enough air conditioning, patient rooms over 32 degrees inside, and these hugely concentrated areas of vulnerability uh, just don't have enough attention on them or don't have enough uh, preparedness for these recurrent events. So I really, I'm, I'm torn because I don't know what the answer is around reporting deaths due to, to heat wave events. Uh, but it does seem that the discrepancy between Ontario and Quebec uh, shouldn't be as, as huge as it is. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult to assign causality sometimes when you're uh, filling out a death certificate. In other news, tornadoes. There was an outbreak of tornadoes, and that's how it's being deemed, an outbreak. Uh, on September 20th and 21st, as many as 37 tornadoes were recorded, uh, most notably uh, an EF3, which cut a 38-kilometer path through Dunrobin, Ontario, and Gatineau, Quebec, and an EF2, which cut its way through Ottawa. As you would expect from any large tornado, there were extensive power outages. Uh, about 450,000 people had some degree of power disruption. You know, 60 homes were destroyed, uh, 200 more were damaged or destroyed in Quebec, uh, and somewhere around 30 to 40 mm. people were injured. But remarkably, uh, there were no deaths attributed to this tornado, which actually 
is quite typical of tornadoes in general in Canada. Uh, in fact, this year's August Alonza uh, Manitoba tornado produced the first Canadian twister fatality in seven years. Interesting. It's a good uh, disaster tidbit to know about uh, the natural history of tornadoes. Yeah, you know, there are very few disasters where immediate protective actions are effective and and twisters are one of them the you know the get in get down get covered really does make a difference and another thing that makes a difference is early warning and this coincides really well with one of the major stories of the year which is the public alerting and it did work is the the big takeaway so a lot of people got warned um, the public mobile alerting on their phones but a lot of people still didn't. So there were some questions from the people who didn't receive the, the warning and weren't able to take that protective action. But the, the overall result in terms of public warning was that it did actually save lives. However, there were a lot of other communication issues. Uh, so tornadoes do seem to interfere with critical communication infrastructure um, pretty significantly. So even even first responders with their radios didn't have great communication throughout the the incident and certainly phone lines and mobile services were down and uh, it's been sort of cited as a a good example of an over-reliance on potentially vulnerable communication methods yeah because wasn't there something about uh like the old good old fm radio you know grand grandma and grandpa who have a an fm am radio uh, on those were still working yeah, that's right. The radios were fine. But one of the findings was that nobody has radios, especially when your car is being totaled and you can't use it. Um, a lot of people have stopped using radios, which is interesting because earlier this year we were reporting on that FM capability of cell phones sort of mm. returning to some of the, the hardware uh, cell phones that were out there. I guess it didn't really um, you know, reach critical mass in terms of usability. But uh, certainly cell phones were down, and interestingly, one of the policy uh, pieces around notification during power power outages actually relies on methods of communication that require power. So a little bit of a a contradiction there. Yeah. Some other issues arising from the tornadoes were, of course, around disaster debris management. You know, a lot of older homes still have asbestos in them, uh, and so some public health messaging had to go through that route uh, and also the amount of time that it's taking to clean up after the fact is is a point of contention for some of the citizens and uh, as we switch into winter mode it's going to be a problem for uh, the road clearing crews as well um, especially if this disaster debris is covered up by snow there's a risk of damage to some of the the snow plows uh, there were also some reports of uh, unfortunately some fraudulent repair companies popping up uh, and some delays in um, rapid damage assessment and insurance inspections so that mm-hmm. uh, recovery can get underway. Yeah, and that's an area that we don't talk a, a ton about on the show is the recovery phase, but uh, mm-hmm. that's a, a very fraught area for sure and, and something that's hard to do well. Well, some of you may remember even just a week ago, uh, there were a rash of bomb threats that went across Canada and in fact the US. So dozens and dozens of bomb threats uh, focused in major cities were delivered by email. It was turned out to be a Bitcoin sort of ransom, almost cyber attack campaign. So lots and lots of businesses impacted uh, by this. And this is a good example of how law enforcement agencies were successfully worked together across the country to determine it was a hoax really quickly. So, you know, within a few hours of the first reports of the bomb threat, um, 
agencies from across the country had got together and and made an official announcement that these were indeed hoaxes. But there's lots of risk that still remains around bomb threats. It's an interesting topic because I I think you know part of it is uh, the counter messaging that's required. You know how confident do you have to be that it's a hoax before you can tell people don't pay attention to this. And the other side of it is you have to treat these things seriously and the impact on critical infrastructure or really important business elements can be almost as bad as the bomb actually going off. That's true. And we we also had some bomb threats at uh, some Canadian hospitals this year too, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. So earlier in the year, there were uh, some swatting calls against Canadian children's hospitals. Uh, It wasn't a bomb threat per se, it was the threat of armed gunmen. again, turned out to be a hoax, but hugely disruptive. And uh, one of the things I hope to explore in the new year is the effect of evacuations on hospitals. And basically, it's not good. You can't evacuate a a major hospital without there being some detrimental impact to patients. Yeah, that's a, a dangerous thing to do for sure. Well, as we close out the year, a couple of things to keep your eye on as we keep on going is the BC windstorm, which just occurred a a couple of days ago. So lots of power outages happening there. And then deja vu, perhaps, but some some winter storms in the Maritimes of all places. Yeah. So in summary, a very eventful year. Uh, Why don't we talk about some of the the overarching themes and some of the, uh, the advancements during the year? Certainly. So Although the first little bit of our episode has certainly been about disaster, uh, it wasn't all a disaster. In fact, there are some really important milestones that we reached this year. One of which, of course, public alerting. We got our first two tests out at a a national level. Um, It's not perfect. Uh, There were some pretty big fails in the first test, some continued things to work on in the second test. But I think uh, overall, the fact that we now have a national public alerting system is something to celebrate. Yeah. And uh, some jurisdictions, including Alberta, had some pretty major legislation changes. Uh, I know the emergency management legislation in Alberta uh, has uh, was just received royal assent um, and some changes in terms of powers to compel evacuations and, and other things. So uh always a big deal for emergency managers when you're uh, enabling legislation changes. And in other news, there was a recent release of the National Strategy on Countering Radicalization to Violence, uh, which was put out, of course, by Public Safety Canada. And you know, on first read, uh, this is pretty similar to other frameworks. Uh, Some of its major value is in defining certain elements of radicalization and, and forming that common language. But I also found it to be extremely informative. Uh, overall. So as a a quick little summary, and maybe we could do a, in case you haven't read it, episode on something like this, uh, the three main thrusts of the strategy is to explain radicalization and form that common language, uh, outline the government of Canada's approach to preventing and countering radicalization, and then setting the priorities. And these priorities were basically set by the uh, Canada Centre for Community Engagement and the Prevention of Violence, which was formed just last year. These three priorities are building, sharing, and using knowledge, uh, addressing radicalization to violence in the online space, and supporting interventions. So I found this to be a pretty progressive framework that's really focused on prevention and the sharing of knowledge as opposed to simply uh, punitive and reactionary measures. 
And in conference news, uh, we had two new conferences this year. So the IAEM mm. Canada Conference, which you went to, Grayson, and the Ontario Disaster and Emergency Management Conference, which I had the uh, good fortune of going to in Toronto. So uh, both uh, very successful Canadian uh, EM meetings. And of course, there was uh, provincial meetings um, uh, across the country as well, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, uh, BC. Uh, so an active uh, uh, disaster conference here. Mm-hmm. And you can definitely look forward to some more next year, which we will keep on our epic disaster calendar. Also, congratulations are in order for uh, the first ever recipients of the Emergency Management Exemplary Service Awards. These awards span the categories of uh, youth contribution, resilient communities, outstanding contributions, so that sort of lifetime achievement award, and then a couple of categories for search and rescue employees and volunteers. And I'm very proud to say that the award recipients include former Epic podcast guest Barry Manuel. Hooray! That's right. So if you don't know about Barry Manuel, he's uh, the Halifax Regional Municipality Emergency Management Coordinator, and he's had quite the career, including coordinating the response and recovery to uh, Hurricane Juan and the Swiss Airlines crash in 1998. Other recipients that are near and dear to our heart include Tom Sampson, who is the uh, Calgary Emergency Management Agency Chief, uh, and Canada Task Force 2, the award for which was accepted by Sue Henry, Kobe Dewar, and Ken McMullen. So congratulations all around. Absolutely. Well deserved. So Josh, 2018, year in review. What was your favorite moment? Well, in terms of uh, what probably I'll remember as a uh, uh, emergency management uh, aficionado, I would say the first time I heard the public alerting uh, text messages going off um, during the first test, even though it wasn't uh, uh, universal, uh, I was on shift in the... uh, uh, in the ICU at the time, and everyone's phones are beeping and buzzing, and people are wondering, oh, what's this? What's going on? And it was uh, kind of a cool thing to to see, knowing the backstory behind it, and and some of the episodes we've done on about how the how much work has gone into mm-hmm. making that happen. So um, it was nice to see the first successful public alerting test. You know, you stole mine. <laughs> oh, mine was definitely around, <laughs> around public alerting as well. But more specifically, it had to do with the Canadian reaction to the maybe less than successful initial, initial test. So if you didn't catch it on Twitter, um, a tweet went out. I don't actually think it was from the BC government, but it went out under that sort of name. Uh, and it said, if you did not receive the hashtag emergency alert via cell phone, it will be delivered to you by a trained Canada goose. Please do not make eye contact with the goose. So I thought that was a very Canadian moment. And if uh, if you look it up, some of the comments to that are absolutely hilarious. And it's a nice way to uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek celebrate our success and some room for improvement. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So what do you think we can expect in uh, 2019? Well, very clearly, some continued improvements to national public alerting. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And there's probably going to be ongoing consolidation of uh, EM efforts across multiple jurisdictional boundaries and uh, the inclusion of Indigenous communities in disaster response. We just saw a release of a report uh, this week, actually. It's a a six-year study, I believe, looking at um, First Nations and wildfire risk. And uh, the IEM Mm -hmm. newsletter has a great infographic kind of highlighting some of the the key uh, recommendations targeted specifically at emergency managers. 
Yeah, and that's one of several studies that came out this year. There's another one that was commissioned after the uh, Fort McMurray wildfires that basically came to the conclusion that indigenous communities weren't really included uh, to the extent that they should have been in the response. And I think this is an evolving topic because this year saw the first tripartite emergency management agreement between First Nations, federal, and then the more municipal and local governments. And I think that's going to be a trend to, to sort of keep an eye on is increased interoperability, increased communication, and some sort of standard in terms of how we're supposed to react between those borders. What else do you see on our horizon? Well, unfortunately, I think... Uh... There'll probably be some more flooding in the Maritimes. That seems to be another ongoing yeah. uh, mm-hmm. theme. Uh, but that kind of ties in with the work that's being done on flood mapping as well. And this is a somewhat contentious area given the insurance uh, implications. But um, interesting that some municipalities have released publicly available flood maps. Um, and, you know, as we've said many times, the uh, that risk interface between human-caused um, development and uh, you know these recurrent disasters is an important uh, theme that I think we, we keep seeing over and over again. That's right. And in terms of uh, you know recurrent disasters, I think there'll be some there will have to be some legislative changes around the human caused fire risks. So you know ATVs and and uh, dirt bikes seem to be one of the biggest issues in terms of ongoing fire risk. And uh, I, I hope to see some more teeth in the legislation around the use or the um, design of those recreational vehicles. Oh, yeah. I think one other thing is just the uh, along those veins is we're starting to see less of the usage of the term natural disaster versus man-made disaster, which I think is Mm -hmm. a step in the right direction. Uh, At least looking at the studies we've reviewed this year in the literature, people are stopping uh, that uh, kind of distinction which really isn't very helpful as we know it's it's all about the interaction so uh, a disaster is a disaster and uh, getting away from this you know difference between man-made or or so-called natural yeah and i think as my final prediction uh looking back at the trends over the last few years i would predict that at least one more record will be broken next year uh, as far as weather related disasters go yeah (laughs) i would agree with you a bit of a grim outlook but uh lots of room for improvement and lots of exciting developments as well. Uh, So just to finish up, we'll tell you about some of the projects we're working on uh, for the coming year. Uh, I just recently did an interview with David Etkin, which will be uh, coming to you shortly. Um, One of the uh, professors at the York University uh, Emergency Management Program. Uh, We're also going to be looking a little bit at military involvement in disaster response. Uh, Grace and I are going to have another one of our epic debates, and we'll tell you about that uh, uh, coming up. Um, We're going to dispel some popular disaster myths, and we also have a lawyer lined up who's going to do an episode on Canadian disaster law. So should be an exciting year for episodes. So thank you very much for listening. But before we go and before we close out the year, uh, I do want to thank the Alberta Podcast Network and ATB Financial for sponsoring us this year. If you don't know, the Alberta Podcast Network is a coalition of amazing podcasts podcasts from all over Alberta, uh, lots of good Canadian content, and you should definitely check them out at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Also, if you want to make a difference for a cause that's important to you, uh, you should know about the ATB Cares program. So ATB Cares lets you increase the impact of your donations. Uh, So if you donate to your favorite charity on ATB Cares, ATB will cover the fees 
plus add 15% to your donation. So in 2017, uh, over 4 million was donated to charity through ATB Cares, and it's a great way you can support a worthy disaster-related cause. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast and the 2018 season. If you'd like to find out more or get in touch, you can email us at team at epicpodcast.ca, send us a tweet to username epic underscore underscore podcast, or visit our website at www.epicpodcast.ca. Thanks for listening and happy new year to you and yours. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of IAEM Canada, the International Association of Emergency Managers. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional, and the views and opinions explored during this podcast do not in any way represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may be a part of. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter by searching Epic Podcast. And finally, a big thank you to all of our contributors and to you, our listeners. Please stay tuned for the next episode of Epic Podcast. Current. Relevant. Canadian.